Seagrasses can host a lot of biodiversity, so a lot of animals can live in them because they're a structure. They actually create little nooks and crannies where small animals can hide from predators. There's going to be a tipping point at some point where, you know, we'll lose them really fast and we'll, be, we'll struggle to get them back. This year is going to be a La Nina, so there's going to be likely to be increased flooding and more cyclones. They're very bad for seagrasses. So what we need to be doing is actively supporting the seagrasses. We actually found that recreating the stomach of a dugong with its acidity, its freshwater darkness and temperature actually had the best results for germinating seagrasses. Welcome to Impact, a Seek University podcast where our experts unpack their latest research in easy to understand language. We discover how these researchers are creating solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Subscribe now to Seek University Podcasts so you don't miss an episode and join the conversation on Seek University's social media. When you think of waters beyond Australia's coastline, chances are you picture endless coral, bright fish, frolicking sea life. But from our famous reef to the turtles, dugongs and everything else that inhabits it, none of it would be there without seagrass. Marine experts call them the kidneys of the Great Barrier Reef, dense seagrass meadows that are vital ecosystems to support breeding, to feed animals and to reduce diseases right through our oceans. The fragile habitat is also under threat, jeopardising countless species that rely on its survival. So who's protecting this vital ocean protector? I'm Mary Bolling from CQ University's communications team, and I'm excited to be talking with my CQ Uni Gladstone colleague, Dr. Emma Jackson. Emma's been working in seagrass ecology for nearly two decades and is the director of CQ University's Coastal Marine Ecosystems Research Centre. And her hands-on approach to protecting seagrass is inspiring whole communities to get involved too. So welcome, Emma. Hi, Mary. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, thanks for joining us. So, Emma, like, is it official? Can we call you a seagrass whisperer? Like, how did you get involved in seagrass preservation and why? I've never been called that before, but <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine myself down there trying to bubble it out underwater. But um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it's difficult to tell from my accent, but I'm actually from the UK. That's a joke. But um, the very <laughs> first time that I actually saw seagrass was actually in Australia. Um, uh-huh. So as an undergrad, I came over and I did a trip to New South Wales and I snorkeled on a seagrass meadow in the pit water. And it was just absolutely teeming with life. Um, and to me, just snorkeling through that meadow was so I, I was just in love from that point. Um, and then I started doing my studies from there. So I did um, an undergraduate, a master's, a PhD, all in seagrasses. So so diving in a seagrass meadow first, is that common? You kind of hear about people diving reefs. How did you come to be in a seagrass meadow? Um, well, like I said, I was a, an undergraduate student. I, I didn't have a lot of money when I was traveling around, so I didn't get to go to the Great Barrier Reef and places like that. But I love being in the water from a young age. So just snorkeling off the shore and um, just seeing, you know, that there was things down there. I just wanted to get in and, and snorkel with the seagrass. So, um, yeah, I think it was it was more a cost thing than anything else. <laughs> And you said they were teeming with life. What What is seagrass? Like people probably picture seaweed, but is it different? 
Yeah, so seagrasses are actually very different from seaweeds. Seaweeds, for one, aren't actually a plant. So, But seagrasses are actually the only true marine flowering plant. So they actually produce flowers and those flowers get pollinated. They produce fruit and seeds. Um, and then they can actually grow from those seeds all in a marine environment, which no other um, plants can actually do. And we've got about 50 different species around the world, each with their unique qualities. But it's the meadows that they form underwater that are really valuable to us and to our that all sounds fascinating so if if they're being pollinated does that mean there's underwater bees doing that or is there something else involved there, there has been a study, so some researchers have actually found that, you know, small sort of animals like shrimps, they're called glamphipods, can actually move around and, and pollinate certain types of seagrass. But um, the seagrass see, that we see around here is mainly pollinated just through the water column. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds easy and efficient and doesn't involve bees getting wet. So that's yeah. good. <laughs> um, so the bad news, I guess, Emma, is that Australia has lost nearly 300,000 hectares of seagrass meadows since the 1930s. What's caused that? And with that amount gone, I guess what's left? Yeah, I mean, that that's actually probably a conservative estimate because it's based Whoa. on us mapping and monitoring seagrasses and what we've actually managed to pull together to identify exactly how much has been lost. Um, it's only a fraction of our coast that we monitor and map, so it's probably likely to be a bit larger than that. And there's all sorts of factors that, that cause it, right from sort of poor water quality. So they're plants, they need light. So anything that affects the, the light getting to them is going to impact on them. So that's everything from um, algal blooms in the water column to um, sediment burial and um, sediments coming down our catchments and been um, making the water really turbid all those things are going to affect seagrasses big storm events or cyclones can rip out really large areas of seagrass um, and so can we so we can rip them out through using boats incorrectly and you know going too shallow or anchoring on them but also through you know removing it through for land reclamation and whether that's you know developing urban areas or ports or um, you know just extending the way that we live on our coast. Right. So what's the impact then? What's the flow on for sea life to have lost that, so, that much seagrass? Yeah, so it's it's not it's not just that we're losing them; we're actually losing them faster than they can naturally recover, um, and so that gradual loss then impacts on a lot of the amazing ecosystem services. So the things that they provide that we we value quite a lot, even sometimes without realizing it. So seagrasses are um, are they basically can host a lot of biodiversity. So a lot of animals can live in them because they, they're a structure. They actually create little nooks and crannies where small animals can hide from predators. Um, and those small animals then become the food of other things. So worms and shrimps and small crabs and things can then live in the seagrass and then be the food for larger fish and things coming in and feeding on those areas. They're also directly eaten by everything from small gastropods right the way through to fish and um some of the animals that we really care about, like dugongs and, and green turtles. So they're a direct food. They also do things like just filtering. So you mentioned them being the kidneys of the Great Barrier Reef. So they actually filter a lot of the fine sediments and nutrients that come off our catchments and stop them getting out into our coral sea and damaging the, the coral reef. And by doing that, they're actually trapping some of that in that fine sediment and, and stabilizing it and stopping it from moving around, which clears our waters up and also prevents erosion. Um, with that sediment, they're actually trapping carbon and they're also taking in carbon themselves. So 
they also offset our carbon footprint. And, and the list goes on. There's, there's so many different valuable ecosystem services that they provide, which will be lost if we lose the seagrasses. You know, there are other habitats around that could produce, provide that nursery service for some of those small juvenile fish and shellfish. But there is evidence out there that, you know, the ones that grow up in seagrass meadows are actually becoming are healthier and they could more likely to survive to maturity than some in some that use other habitats. So if you lose the seagrasses, then you're you're breaking up that cycle and you you might affect some of the fisheries that we've got offshore and even within the coral reef system. It sounds like an underwater paradise <laughs> if we can protect it. What about what's happening on the land? What are the impacts beyond the ocean and for us land dwellers if seagrass is lost? Well, I mean, you know, a lot of Australians um, fish and we eat fish and shellfish. So anything that affects our fisheries. So losing our fish nursery habitats is, is going to be very bad for business, but also bad for our, our way of life because people love fishing. Um, you know, the, the carbon offset factor, um, not only when you're losing the seagrass's ability to trap carbon from the water column and offset things like our carbon footprint, but also ocean acidification, um, we're losing that, but at the same time, actually destroying the seagrass can actually release some of that carbon. So it's adding to the problem as well. So, so that's going to you know, cause more of the problems that we're seeing related to climate change. And even just the fact that they're there and they're a habitat for some amazing animals and losing that for future generations is something that you know, we should be caring about because it will be a shame if our future generations don't get to see a, a dugong or a turtle in the wild. Enjoying this episode? Subscribe to Seek University's podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, rate, review, and share. I think the, the key problem with the seagrasses is the, the rate that we're losing them. Um, so it's quite likely there's going to be a tipping point at some point where, you know, we'll lose them really fast and we'll, be, we'll struggle to get them back. Um, and even here in the tropics where we have really fast growing species of seagrasses, when the conditions are right, they do really well. So this year has actually been a good year for seagrasses in central Queensland, um, but the trajectory is still bad over time. So, you know, with the Bureau of Meteorology is now declaring that this year is going to be a La Nina. So there's going to be likely to be increased flooding and more cyclones. They're very bad for seagrasses. So what we need to be doing is actively supporting the seagrasses and, and utilising those good years um, and sort of saving for the bad years and we're looking to do that through seed-based restoration so it's quite literally saving for a rainy day. So supporting through restoration does that literally mean planting? How do you plant a seagrass? Yeah so it, it depends on the seagrass and, and there's there's luckily a lot of researchers across both Australia and the world that are looking into the different methods because it's very specific to the seagrass species and the environment that you're looking at. So in some cases, yeah, it's just like planting a turf on your on your lawn. Um, so you might go out and just turf your lawn. So it's the same with seagrasses and they've been places where they've literally just turfed the area. And um, so taking it from donor meadows and just replanted it into other areas. Um, and then there's other places that are looking at more seed-based restoration 
population. So our problem with the turf, and we've tried that, it works quite well here. Um, but the problem with it is that you're working in very muddy environments with the risk of crocodiles and heat stroke. And um, <laughs> it's very difficult to go out there and plant really large bits of turf across a meadow. And there's also the damage to the natural meadows as well, because we really need to scale up our restoration. Seagrass's restoration works best when it's done at scale. So to do that by taking transplants from a native bed, you're going to a natural bed that you're going to cause damage. So we're looking at, at creating nursery seagrasses. So and that's to both create um, plugs to do the planting, but mainly to look at ways in which we can propagate and cultivate seagrasses for, for their seed. Um, so seed based restoration is a great way to go because one seed of seagrass um, can basically create up to a hectare of seagrass meadow if the conditions are right. Um, and on one flower, so you probably get about 100 to 200 flowers in a square meter. Each flower has about 15 seeds in it. So you can suddenly play the numbers game and put lots of seed out there, even if only 40% of them germinate and, and create seagrass, you know, you're, you're already well on the way to, to restoring a meadow. So that's why we've started to focus a little bit more on the seed-based restoration. Right. So does that involve harvesting? Like how do you go out and get the seeds? Yeah, so, we, so we're looking at um, actually growing um, the plants in the nursery and creating our and making, you know, getting our own flowers and collecting the seeds from those. Um, but it also, to get the numbers, um, it involves going out and collecting the flowers from the donor meadows. So that involves people literally going out on the intertidal seagrass meadows and, and picking the flowers. Um, and we do that in a way that doesn't impact on the the donor meadow um, but it's also a great way to get people involved in going out and collecting these flowers we then take the flowers back to our aquaria systems um, and get the seeds from them and then we can use the seeds both in our research to look at the best ways of using those seeds and storing them um, and looking at other ways in which we can improve their success um, but it also means that we can actually sort of start to look at the ways in which we can plant them out there and start to restore seagrass meadows Okay, cool. And when you're describing all of this happening, this is this is not theoretical for you. You're out there with the crocodiles, with the grasses and in the nursery as well, back on CQ University's Gladstone's campus, um, nurturing these seagrass. Do you feel like a seagrass mum? <laughs> Yeah, a little bit. I do. I do. I don't get out as much as I used to now that I'm the the director of the centre. But um, but we've got a really great team here now with um, researchers and and research um, students that are working across different aspects of the seed based restoration for seagrasses. But I do like I can if I look out of my window now, I can see the seagrass nursery. And, you know, sometimes if it's getting a bit much, I can go down there and just like stroke some of the algae that attaches to the seagrass leaves and go down and stroke the seagrass. So, yeah, I probably feel like a little bit like a seagrass mum there. But yeah, it's, a, it's it's definitely it's it's great that it's growing. It's great that we've got a lot of people really looking into making it work now. We've also got some new connections with um, industry and also with the local indigenous sea rangers to really sort of expand on what we've already got. And as part of CMERC, um, we've been able to expand the seagrass nursery and have a whole new system as well. Okay, so how big are we talking then for the nursery? How many plants are you out there uh, stroking? <laughs> oh, <laughs> so there's 36 large tanks um, and each of those tanks um, can hold probably about a, a metre and a half of seagrass. Um, so if you think what I was saying before about the number of seeds that we can get. Um, so some of the nurseries actually um, more of a research based 
um, facility. So we're actually with that, we're looking at um, getting those seeds from specific plants from specific areas to look at how they can adapt to different conditions. So this is a little bit similar to what they're doing with um, some of the coral reef work where they're looking at, you know, are there certain seagrasses that are adapted to um, more turbid environments or higher temperatures so that we can look at increasing their resilience as we restore into the future. Fantastic. And like you say, this is a very research-informed process. From all the research you've done as you've been um, restoring and regenerating these seagrass beds, what's been the biggest discovery? Have you had a eureka moment? What have you been most surprised by? Um, I think it's lots of little surprises. Um, and one of the really interesting things that we found is, is just how much more you learn about the seagrasses when you've got them growing long-term in tanks next next door to your office so you're actually seeing how things change over time you know what what affects things what triggers the flowering you know we we now know when our seagrasses in our tanks here flower we've got another couple of weeks before they start flowering outside in the in the field so it's a really good indication that we need to start getting out there to get the flowers um, we also looked at some of the different ways in which we could get the seeds to germinate and one of the funniest but it was in, interesting but funny at the same time was a student project that looked at the different natural triggers that could be good for us to sort of build on. So she looked at, um, you know, whether it was to do with the freshwater pulses that we get from when we have our flood events in the wet season, whether it was um, the stomach of a dugong. So we tried to recreate the conditions in a stomach of a dugong. Because <laughs> um, if you think about it, dugongs are going out there, they're feeding on the seagrass, these flowers and seeds are passing through them into their stomachs and then being deposited in another seagrass meadow as a really nice little cohesive fertilized lump <laughs> so, <laughs> so um yeah really good way they, they're excellent for you know spreading things so and we actually found that recreating the stomach of a dugong with, with its acidity its freshwater darkness and temperature actually had the best results for for um germinating seagrasses but a bit costly but, <laughs> but it was well, interesting though i was going to ask if the next step was now trying training dugongs to <laughs> do your work for you can you get them oh. out there delivering the seagrass to the right place yeah unfortunately that's the thing with dugongs is that they go between seagrass meadows mostly so um there's some areas that they you know that we we're looking to restore or create or enhance where the dugongs might not necessarily be hanging out so we do look at other ways but the the freshwater pulse is is one that you know there's a lot of evidence now that that works really well to get the seagrasses to germinate which fits in with the timing because they're flowering now they're dropping their seeds just before Christmas and then we get our you know wet season where you're getting the flood events and that lowering of the salinity on some of these meadows and that gets them germinating. That all sounds amazing and amazing to be a part of. It sounds like the restoration process is just such a big job. How are you tracking the process and how do you kind of scale it from your tanks to yeah out to the ocean I suppose yeah well I guess we see our role as as very much in the research area um, but then looking at how we can apply that research is really important because there's no point in us learning how to germinate seeds how to store them without getting the people that potentially could be delivering that service at a larger scale involved and also the people that can be going out there and managing the seagrasses so so we're doing that for a number of different ways so we're basically um, looking we partner with industry so we partner with the managers the people that have to manage the condition of the seagrass meadows we also 
also man, um, partner with the traditional owners, the people that are out there, you know, custodians of our um, coastal areas that are really keen to see the seagrass meadows come back. Um, and also through citizen science programs. Um, so the citizen science programs, um, which we've got a new program that's funded um, under the Queensland government, uh, which is going to be looking at getting more people involved in coming out to help us collect some of the flowers um, that are out there at the right time of year and use those flowers to um, collect seeds that we can then put out and start doing larger scale um, restoration trials. And we're also looking at the commercial aspect because potentially this, this is jobs for Australians. They found in other parts of the world that, you know, restoration is, is something that can provide quite an, uh, it's quite a new industry and it can provide quite a lot of um, um, jobs for people, especially with the need to do mitigation offsets and things like that going forwards. So we're working with um, industry and commercial operations to look at how they can start to build seagrass nurses in the commercial aspects, scale things up so that literally when you need to do some um, mitigation or you need to do some enhancement of seagrass meadows or create seagrass meadows or restore them, um, you've got a place where you can buy seeds en masse and you'd be able to go out there and, and you know, the seeds out in a more scaled up way but you're right it is a very big job the other thing that we do is through the seagrass australian and new zealand seagrass restoration network is that all of the people studying seagrasses around australia and new zealand all the researchers have come together in one network and we're sharing our successes and our failures so that we're not wasting time by doing something that people have already found doesn't work um, and that's the great minds coming together creating a lot of um, momentum and and really driving the research forwards. Um, it sounds like there's so much going on. It also sounds like that push to get industry involved and possibly even business. Is there, um, you said that seagrass was great at carbon sequestration. Is there opportunity that like forests are planted to offset carbon emissions, we could be seeing seagrasses offset carbon emissions and almost a carbon sink that's a business-based seagrass meadow? Yes, definitely. And, and it's already being looked at. Um, so different seagrass meadows and depending what they are might might store more or less carbon. Um, and so that affects the valuation of them. So, so some of that work is being done now to work out, you know, where you should be putting seagrass and how much value you'll get from in terms of carbon offsets. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they're amazing at capturing carbon just because of the anoxic and conditions and the fact that they're continuously um, trapping organic matter and storing it really long term so um yeah basically putting seagrass out there and and planting seagrass for carbon offsets is a definite way forwards um in that sort of fight um but also just you know in terms of offsetting some of the coastal developments that we have you know so if we're losing seagrass because of a coastal development knowing how and where we could plant that's replant that seagrass to help mitigate some of the impacts of losing the seagrass is is another important management action that people are doing um but the problem is, is that at the moment they, they don't have the land nurseries. So, for example, if a, if somebody was developing something and having to mitigate a site or replant or restore somewhere on land, they'd go to one of our native plant nurseries and they'd basically get the plants from there and, and you know, go out and, and plant the area. And they can't do that at the moment. If seagrass is because we don't have the the the, um, the propules and the, the, the plants to actually go out and do that. So we need to build the industry at the same time as the research to be able to do that to scale. 
Sounds like an amazing opportunity. And speaking of opportunities, you were talking about citizen scientists and getting more of them out to the seagrass. I guess to finish, Emma, you've been taking people for years now out to seagrass meadows and getting them involved in the reforestation. Um, What are some of the responses you're getting? What do people get out of being part of this process? I mean, it's, it's been great. We've had, like, I think the youngest we've had out there, obviously with their parents, was about seven um, right the way. And I think the oldest was nearly 85. So it's like <laughs> a whole range of people. Um, and it, it's been great. I think the key thing when they're going out collecting the flowers is you've got to, you get your eye in. So you suddenly, they're not beautiful big roses or anything <laughs> like that. You know, they're, they're pretty difficult to see sometimes. But once you get your eye in, you can find them really well. And, and kids are especially good at it. Um, and then they collect them. But whilst they're in there looking for the flowers, they're seeing all the other animals that are living in the seagrass up close so normally they might just walk out across the seagrass meadow to go fishing or to you know to play in the mud or whatever um, but now they're actually looking at all the life in the seagrass meadows and that gives them a real appreciation of how valuable they are um, and just getting out and you know focusing on doing something that's positive you know positive action for our seas positive action for climate change it's I think people get a good feeling from that and, and enjoy coming out and doing it you know getting that wider knowledge and and um, people to actually see what's out there and why it's important is really important for the for seagrass habitats and other habitats that they depend on. You said at the start that it's all connected, that seagrass needs to be healthy to keep the reef healthy, to keep so many marine animals healthy. Um, it sounds like the interconnectedness needs needs us people on the land as well to be contributing. What's your big goal for this project? What's your dream for seagrass from here? Oh, it'd be great to get more people involved. So anybody that is interested in getting involved and coming along and collecting flowers for the project, um, do get in touch and um, and come along and just see it. And that's not just in, in the work that we're doing in central Queensland. There are similar projects um, that maybe collect in very different ways because they're not the same environment that we have. Um, but there's other ways of getting involved in some of those other restoration projects as well. And I think just being conscious that seagrasses are there and it's not just um, grass that washes up on the shore and causes a nuisance. And it's not just something that interferes with your anchor and things like that, but, but that it does support some of the, you know, the fisheries, it supports some of these amazing animals and it has all these great ecosystem services that it provides. And then just, you know, thinking about some of the developments and some of the things that are happening and, and be conscious of the fact that if we lose too much of our seagrass, it will impact on us. Yeah, that sounds like a great wake-up call to everyone to think about it and then get out amongst it as well. Um, I am very excited to know that the seagrass is going to be flowering all the way up to Christmas and I can't wait to hear how the next round of... um, of replanting goes for you guys as well, Emma. Thank you so much for joining us on Impact today and best of luck with the project. Thanks, Mary. To find out more about how CQ University is changing lives through real-world research, check out our website in the description and remember to subscribe to CQ University podcasts so you don't miss an episode.